Hello and welcome to this episode of Take 15. I'm Lauren Foster, Content Director at CFA Institute, and joining me today is Josh Brown. Now, for those of you who don't know who Josh Brown is, he is CEO of Ritholtz Wealth Management. He is also the persona behind the wildly successful financial blog, The Reformed Broker. Welcome, Josh. Thank you so much for being here today. Hi, how, you how are you, Lauren? I'm good. I feel like we've yeah. known each other online <laughs> for years. Yes, this is true. So I'm um, turning to, I guess, a slightly more serious topic. I'd like to start with something I read that was describing your first book, which was Backstage Wall Street. Yeah. Um, this is a quote. It's, um, it's a Molotov cocktail thrown at the brokerage industry. So you're not known for pulling any punches. Um, and just last week in Fortune, you wrote about the Obama administration push for a fiduciary standard across the industry. Yeah. And that was titled, The Most Horrendous Lie on Wall Street. So tell us, what is at stake here? Why do you feel so passionately about this issue? So it stems from the fact that they don't teach personal finance and investing in high school. Okay. I think if they did that, people would be better armed to cope with what they're confronted with when they go to start investing. Right. But they're not. We teach trigonometry instead, yeah. which clearly has a lot of real-world uh, usage, <laughs> I guess. No, but we, we should be, so we don't. So people are financially illiterate. Okay. The problem is, immediately when they have any kind of money to invest, whether it's in a 401k or a rollover IRA or whatever the case may be, the first thing that happens to them is they're confronted by financial salespeople. And it's not that financial salespeople or brokers in general are bad people. It's that the incentive system in which they work, and I was one of them, and I'm pretty open mm -hmm. about yeah. what I did and what I went through. Um, the incentive system is, is set up in diametric opposition to the non-sophisticated investor. Mm -hmm. And what, what results in that is, in my view, a contributing factor to the retirement crisis that we have in this country. People don't have enough put away. Part of the reason is a lot of their money has been siphoned off right. by egregious commissions and selling concessions and mm -hmm. um, behavior in investment accounts that's totally contrary to what's best for the end investor. Right. And it happens all over the country and it happens to everyone. And I've had enough of it. I've seen it for, I've seen it up close for almost 20 years now. And I think. Look, I don't think regulation is always the answer to everything, but in a case like this, mm -hmm. where it's so black and white, right. it's so obvious that there are people who are practitioners who are literally working against their clients. Right. It's, it's enough. I've had it, and I'm probably not making friends saying the things that I'm saying, but I don't care. They're true, mm -hmm. and I hope, I'm sure there'll be some compromise, but I hope we get something that protects people right. as the end result. Okay. So your, your blog is known as The Reformed Broker. Um, and what's the, the story behind your reformation? You made some allusion today to having some, some sins that you have to sort of Yeah, I, well, so I started in the brokerage industry very young. It was the first job I had in the summers in between college, and I just never stopped. Okay. Um, and I didn't have any good guidance. Um, so the guys I started out working for were at like third tier broker dealers. Right. And you know I was never like in a Merrill training program. Um, 
I ended up like, oh, this guy plays golf with my dad and he's really successful. So I'll go work for him and I'll learn something. Everything I learned was backwards, wrong. I had a front row seat for how not to do things. Okay. And I stayed longer than I should have. So the reformed broker persona was not like, oh, I'm a whistleblower. It was more like, yeah. hey, I've seen it all. Right. Let me be very honest now and let the, the chips land where they may. Okay. And I didn't intend it as a marketing thing. Or I was just, I needed somewhere to vent. Okay. So you I said st- you were pretty angry when you left the industry. Yeah, I, I'm still angry. No, I, I, well, because I just felt like I was led down this really stupid path. Um, my parents didn't really know any better, and mm-hmm. so that started when I was very young, right. and then I felt trapped in it, and so the blog was kind of a venting place, and I guess it's grown to be more than that. Okay. Um, let's talk a little bit about fintech. Um, I know that you're a huge proponent of fintech. I am. Uh, you've blogged that you're a big believer uh, in the idea that innovation makes the market work better for investors. Um, but you've also blogged about your concerns uh, about the addressable market or TAM yeah. for most products being tiny. So yeah, well, so I think, I think we're still in this aftermath of this period in the late 90s where stocks became America's pastime. And there was this feeling that everyone should be trading. Everyone can yeah. be the next, you know big trading superstar. And it's so ridiculous, obviously. But I think there is a hardcore community of traders that are really passionate about trading. And I have no problem with that. I'm friends with these guys. A lot of fintech seems to be focused on trading technologies for regular people. And it's just absurd. They have no chance at making money. They can only lose money, the users. So what I've kind of said was like B2B fintech is where it's at. And B2C fintech a lot of it is a solution in search of a problem. Nobody actually needs right. trading software. Okay. So. so your second book, that was Clash of the Financial Pundits, uh, and that, I guess, digs deep into the financial punditry business, yeah. uh, trying to show why pundits talk and why investors listen. Um, why did you write that book? So I wrote that with uh, a co-author, my friend Jeff Mackey, okay. and here's why, I think, here's why I think we started the book. Mm-hmm. We said, because so Jeff was, fairly well-known financial commentator, um, and I was as well. And I think we said to ourselves, like, if only people knew, like, what really goes on behind the scenes. And again, it's not an expose. Mm -hmm. We're not disrespectful to people that are, you know, talking about markets in the media, Mm because we're doing that. But the idea was, like, let's just show that these are human beings, fallible, uh, prone to biases, and that there have always been financial pundits throughout history, and a lot of the time they get it wrong. So we did this interesting thing where we alternated chapters about financial pundits throughout history, okay. like guys during the Great Depression, and, mm-hmm. and then we interspersed that with interviews with contemporary pundits where they were able to be very honest and open, like, hey, yeah, I come out, I say what stocks I like, but right. I get things wrong, and you know, so I think it, from that standpoint, I think it gives the reader context so that when they come into contact with financial media, they know how to listen to things and not react to things. And okay. So speaking of financial media, I mean, you're a prolific producer and consumer of financial information. Uh, yeah. I think one interview I heard, uh, you said you wrote the equivalent of about a book a week. I mean, that's, that's a lot like that, of yeah. words. It's about 60,000 words a week. That's a lot, um, yeah. 
which is like a 250-page book. Yes. So, so I mean, a lot of people are turning to your blog, to your um, you know uh, contributions, your commentary. So who do you turn to, like either on a daily basis or a weekly basis? What are your some must-reads? So I work with my colleagues who are also great bloggers, my, uh, Michael Batnick, um, Ben Carlson, Barry Redholtz. I read everything that they write. Um, I, I read the Wall Street Journal and Bloomberg News, my two favorite news sources. What about the uh, FT? Um, the FT has like this annoying quasi-gate. Okay. So they have amazing content. Yes. Just haven't gotten around to subscribing. Okay. If they were smart, they would give me the ability to unlock content for readers. So mainstream media care, is more Bloomberg and Wall Street Journal. Those are my two favorites, okay. and I read Barron's every weekend. And okay. uh, I love the Barron's columnists, and yeah. I love the that they're not they're they're not afraid to buy or sell calls on stocks. Which is rare right. amongst journalists, yeah. mm -hmm. but I, I think it's I think Barron's is great. Okay, and any other blogs that you must? I like must the Enterprising reads. Investor, which is a CFA uh, <laughs> society blog. It's awesome. Um, Will Ortel is ten times smarter than me, so when he writes, I read. Um, I think that's a great blog. I read uh, Morgan Housel and Molly oh, Fool, Jason yes. Zweig, whatever yes. he writes, I read it. Yeah. Um, who else really good? Bob C. Wright writes a blog called yes. Above the Market. Very thoughtful Great. man, yes. nice guy too. Tom okay. Brackey, I hope he is back to blogging soon. Yes. Um, he's must read. Tadas Visconti is the best curator yes. in the business at Abnormal Returns. Mm -hmm. um, he doesn't miss anything. I don't know how he does it. Yep. Uh, and then on the journalism side, I read Joe Weisenthal at Bloomberg. I read uh, Lynette Lopez at Business Insider. Okay. Uh, Sam Rowe and Michael Santoli, both at Yahoo Finance. Okay. Um, there's a list. Yes, it's a, uh, it's a long list. Some people leave, some people right. enter, yeah. um, okay. but I'm, I'm trying to keep up with it as best I can. Okay. I'm only human. <laughs> so if I missed anyone, it's, it's not an yeah. intentional story. Okay. So uh, you rightly recognize as one of the most influential um, tweeters. Um, okay. I think last time I looked, you're almost at 135,000 oh followers. Um, I'm so famous. <laughs> you have the, you know, your blog. So how has social media helped well, your I business? Just, I love Twitter. And uh, so that's, I don't really spend time on Facebook um, or, or LinkedIn. Like Twitter is the one that I, like yeah. there's only so many hours in the day. Yeah. So if you're going to be involved with one, so that one for me is, is Twitter. I pretty much, I pretty much check into it every hour. Okay. But I'm not sitting there staring at it. I'll check in and I'll see what people are talking about mm -hmm. and most of the time I won't have anything to add. Right. Sometimes I will and that's when you'll see a tweet from me kind of thing. Okay. And it's a really great um, distribution mechanism right. for, so when I write something at my site or at Fortune, mm -hmm. how else do you let people know that you wrote something? Right. Like that's how I do it. And I think that's how it's used to maximum effect is yep. to broadcast. Now you've hired people who've either been following you on Twitter or have been reading your blog. Right, this is like it's become a distribution channel, more than distribution. It's, it's because they, it's like-minded people. Yeah. I already worked with people that don't agree with anything they do. Right. I did that already. Yeah. That, was, that was fun. <laughs> I don't want to do that again. I want to work with people who get what I'm saying and who I can learn from. Right. And uh, it's not a monoculture, like right. there's no room for any debate. I have really intelligent debates. I think they're intelligent with yeah. people I work with. Yeah. Um, but. The, the broad strokes of what we do and the people that come to work with us, we all agree mm -hmm. that 
investors should understand what they're invested in. There should be zero conflict whatsoever. Right. There should be as much transparency as an investor asks for mm -hmm. into our process. Why did we pick this portfolio for you? Yep. And everything should be tied to their goals, okay. not to some ridiculous thing like alpha or sharp ratio that has no impact on their life. Everyone that works in the firm believes those things. Okay. And that's a really good starting point, I think, to, to building an organization. Okay. No, but we think that people should be trying to better themselves. So on the research side, right. having Ben and Mike who are CFAs is invaluable. Right. The CFA mark means something beyond just, I'm really good at taking tests. It's got an ethical code that comes with it. Right. So we're really proud of that affiliation. Just the idea of attaining higher degrees of education and getting better, mm -hmm. that's a cool thing to watch happen with mm -hmm. the people that work in the firm. Josh, it's been a tremendous pleasure talking thank to you. you. Thanks for being my guest today, uh, and thank you for watching. Copyright 2016 CFA Institute. This program is designed to give accurate and authoritative information in regard to the subject matter covered. It is distributed with the understanding that CFA Institute is not engaged in rendering legal, accounting, tax, investment, or other expert advice. If legal advice or other expert assistance is required, the services of a competent professional should be sought.